Hello and welcome to episode one of Popular Volcanics, a podcast about volcanoes and all the things related to volcanoes. Everyone who's listening is excited to, to hear this inaugural podcast. I am Eric Clemetti. I am a professor at Denison University and write for Discover Magazine. And I am Janine Krippner, a volcanologist and science communicator at the Global Volcanism Program at the Smithsonian here in D.C. So I imagine that many of you listeners are familiar with us from podcasts, or I guess some podcasts, but mostly from blogs, from Twitter, from various news appearances. But for those of you who might be new, I thought it'd be helpful if uh, we give ourselves a little introduction of who we are and and what we do. And uh, I think, Janine, I'll let you uh, lead off on this. Thank you. Uh, So I've been in love with volcanoes pretty much since I was born. And when I was 13, I discovered that it was actually something I could do with my life. So I've been on that path ever since. And I've specialized in explosive eruptions, in particular pyroclastic flows, which are really hot very fast avalanches that race down volcanoes, destroying everything in their path. And I've also got into science communication and crisis communication, so largely on Twitter and also working with media so that everyone has access to the right information during a crisis. All right. And uh, let's see, what's my background? Uh, I feel like, Janine, you have had a much more intentional entry into sort of this science communication thing where I feel like I kind of... stumbled my way in blindly about a decade ago. That's funny you say that, because when I started, I looked at you as being one of the masters of volcano communication. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, about a decade ago, I I started writing about volcanoes uh, for a public audience. I'm a I am a volcanologist by training as well. I, I'm more on the magma side of things than the the stuff that comes out the top side of things. Um, I've been teaching here at Denison for about nine years now, but uh, I, I it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly when and why I am into volcanoes. Uh, my mother is Colombian. We grew, you know, I grew up part of the uh, my uh, youth in a place that was right near Nevada del Ruiz which uh, is famous for its deadly eruption in the mid-80s. But I don't know if that was a direct reason why I, I like studying volcanoes. I just like studying volcanoes. <laughs> um, and I, I got a little frustrated by the fact that I couldn't find a lot of volcanically vetted information about the time the uh, Chaitan erupted in Chile uh, a decade, a little over a decade ago. And I kind of have just been making it up as I go along ever since. That's where Cheers I am. To making it up as I go along. <laughs> My crisis communication started as a complete accident. So sometimes it's seeing something needs to be done and just doing it. So some of you might wonder, okay, well, the two of you do an awful lot of communicating about volcanoes. So why a podcast now? Uh, do you have any any thoughts on why you have decided that it'd be interesting to do this yeah, as a podcast? So I see a lot of media Um, on volcanoes. And media is wonderful in so many ways, especially when they contact us and help us help them get the facts right. But there are also some that are really, really terrible, um, including tabloids from the UK, well, actually, especially tabloids from the UK. 
And so I think as volcanology, we really have to come together and make our science much more accessible. And we need to do that in different ways. So there are a bunch of really great volcanologists on Twitter. Um, you'll see a great number of us talking to media during an event. But that's all. So there is a huge communication gap in so many ways that we need to start filling. And podcasting seems like a really fun way to reach more people and get more facts and information out there. Yeah, I was, just, I was surprised. So this last semester when I was teaching here at Denison, uh, my intro geology class did a podcasting project with a bunch of other classes here on campus. And I was, I was surprised. I don't know, maybe I'm too old for some of this. I'm not that old, but I'm old enough that I was surprised how, how much the students listen to podcasts. I kind of, I don't know, I'd gotten into this mode that, that podcasts were, were hip about a decade ago, but apparently they're even more hip now than I ever imagined. Um, so I thought, you know, that was one of some of my rationale was like, you know, Twitter is useful. Twitter has its issues, as we all know. So a podcast seemed like a natural way to, to be able to, I, don't, I guess I want to say, help to normalize the volcanic activity on Earth, because it tends to be treated with such a breathless tone on a lot of social media that I thought it'd be useful to be able to talk about volcanoes in a way that makes the um, extent of activity that we see people realize that this is how yeah, the planet operates. Yeah, we do operates. live on a very active planet. In fact, there are 49 ongoing eruptions around the world right now. 49. And, uh, you know, it, and, and you tend to sometimes see articles that are like, five volcanoes are erupting at the same time and make it seem like... Yeah, the ring of fire is going to explode. No, that's normal. <laughs> <laughs> and and getting across that that normalcy, it kind of sounds a little weird. It's like we're going to do a podcast to make sure that volcanoes don't seem as headline grabbing as they are sometimes. And it's not, that's not what I'm trying to say here, but <laughs> but it feels that way to to some degree. Yeah, and, and they are headline grabbing. They're incredible events, especially when they, we have these larger eruptions and eruptions all too frequently really impact people. So we should be seeing this in the news. But helping people understand what's normal and what's something people should actually be concerned about, I think is something that I, I know a lot of people that I've spoken to would appreciate. I mean, that's kind of our vague plan for how this podcast might go is, you know, we're going to start off probably aiming at once a month and, you know, talk, have some banter about what's going on on the planet volcanically, looking at things like what's been in the news and the Global Volcanism Program's weekly report and, and things like that. Um, and hopefully then have guests on that can give us some insights into different uh, volcanic activity. Uh, but we'll also veer into other things. I know we have talked the idea of uh, settling <laughs> the great Dante's Peak and volcano debate um, with volcanoes <laughs> in the movies. I don't, I'm not sure we'll ever settle that debate. It's very split. <laughs> I am team Dante's Peak, by the way. Yeah, and I... I Luckily for a debate, I'm on the other side where I, I like volcanoes so much more. And I, I, <laughs> I won't judge you. Watch this space. Go watch the movies and join us later. Yes. Um, so that's kind of the, the plan. We'll just talk about the, the things that are going on in the volcano world that, that have people's attention. Talk about some uh, research that we might run across that, that might be interesting for, for you, the listener. And um, talk about 
anniversaries of some famous eruptions and and go from there. So that's that's the plan right now. Yeah, and we'll do some great myth busting. And you know, for this first episode, we're <laughs> we going straight for the jugular, I suppose. We are, and we'll be talking about <laughs> uh, Yellowstone, and uh, we'll be uh, interviewing later on uh, Dr. Mike Poland, the. Uh, scientist in charge of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory, and he can tell us the, the breathless news of what's going on at Yellowstone, which is entirely not bad. So there you go. Yeah, I, I have a question for you. How often are you asked, when is Yellowstone going to blow? Is it going to kill us all or something along those lines? Oh, I guess it depends on the venue. Whenever I give a public talk, I will get that question, no matter what I was actually publicly talking about. Um, so that is a, <laughs> that's a common theme. Uh, and, you know, when I look at my blog over the last decade, far and away, the most popular posts are always the Yellowstone posts. Like, they are hands down, I could pretty much just mash my keyboard after typing the word Yellowstone, and it would get immense amounts of traffic um, because whatever, people seem to be in, in, intently drawn to it. Yeah, yeah I, I I meet a lot of people, especially living in DC now. And every single time I meet I meet someone new and it comes up, what, I, what do I do? And I say volcanoes. I'd say 99% of the time, the following question is something about Yellowstone. And I actively avoid talking about that volcano because it's not my specialty <laughs> at all. So it's it's something that's you know clearly a globally a concern for people and in ways that it shouldn't be. So I think I think it'd be great to to bust some of those myths with Mike. Yeah, and I think you, the listeners, will all be surprised <laughs> about some of what Mike has to say about his role as scientist in charge of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. For those of you, again, getting back to the volcano movies, if you. Uh, want to, you can go back and watch the film Super Volcano, which to some degree might have gotten some of this Yellowstone ball rolling. Um, and we'll probably talk about that movie a bit with Mike as well when, when he's on. So uh, yeah, so that'll be coming up later in the episode. Uh, right now, I think we can talk a little bit about what's going on globally by looking at the uh, current Global Volcanism Program's weekly report. Now, for those of you who aren't the type to go and seek this thing out, at least yet, you might start yes. doing so. Um, the Smithsonian at the Natural History Museum runs the Global Volcanism Program, which Janine is part of. Uh, they do a weekly volcanic activity report. And uh, do, do you want to talk a little bit about the report and and its purpose and construction? Yeah, sure. So we have some wonderful people working here, and Sally is the one who puts together the weekly volcano activity report. And you can find that on volcano.si.edu. And that is basically a snapshot of the changes in activity. So it's not every single volcano. There are 49 currently ongoing eruptions around the world, and usually the weekly covers about 20 of those. So when something has changed or there's something notable is when Sally will gather all of the official information that is being put out by volcano observatories, um, official universities that are monitoring them, and disaster agencies, and 
just distill that into a short paragraph usually, unless there's something else going on, and put out a weekly update. So it gives you an idea of the sort of activity that's going on around the world every week. And then we also have bulletin reports, which is what I've been working on recently, where we look back in time months later and find all the information we can. So we find all the official information. We do data mining on social media. We use satellite data. And we put together the story or the timeline of the eruption and the impacts to the locals as well. So we have online available for everyone here a full catalog of global volcanic activity. Again, for those of you who have not visited the the global volcanism program um it is very much a a vast storehouse um for me (laughs) if you think about the baseball world there's a number of websites that just have like all the statistics of all the players that have ever played and the the gvp is kind of like that for volcanoes it it has the you can look up volcano pages for specific uh places and see all the uh, known eruptions or even eruptions that have been discredited and a summary about what that volcano's activity is like and all sorts of of data about volcanic activity on the planet. So, you know, if you're into the, into those sorts of volcanic statistics, uh, the site would definitely be something for you. Yeah, it's it's really helpful. I'm I'm really happy to be working here because this is the first place I've always gone. If there's new activity on a volcano or if I'm being interviewed about a volcano or an eruption, this is my number one place I will go. And after that, um, it's important to go and go find the official observatory or the official agency because they put out a lot more technical information and faster updates than anyone else. So the number one place to go to for current activity right this minute is always the official sources. So that's USGS as well as civil defense in the United States. If there's an eruption going on, civil defense will be giving information too. And that varies by country. And to find a list of that, you can actually go to the World Organization of Volcano Observatories, WOVO. So if you Google that, they actually have a list of volcano observatories. But we distill all of that and we have links to those sources in there as well. Uh, So you can go to the, we say, GVP, Global Volcanism Program website and find everything volcano-related. So is there anything in the current reports that you would like to start drawing people's attention to? Well, there's there's so much going on. So just this past week, we had at Agung, a volcano very close to my heart, an ash plume up to nine kilometers, so that's above sea level, um, as well as incandescent ejector, so rocks that are so hot they're glowing exploding out of the volcano and landing on the volcanic flanks um sakurajima's been active again this week we have in kamchatka ibeko kluchevskoy shivilic and karumsky and we have a lava lava spattering at virica in chile but um yeah we have poas in costa rica we have a lava flow at Pacaya in Guatemala, as well as Santa Maria in Guatemala and Fuego in Guatemala are also active. So there's a whole bunch of activity. We have lajas, we have lava flows, lava spattering, strombolian eruptions, ash plumes. There's so much going on. I mean, and that's one of the things that is important to point out is that there are lots of occasions where these volcanoes will produce, uh, you know, an explosion that might reach a few kilometers above the volcano uh, and throw blocks kilometer away from the volcano and that's perfectly normal activity for lots of these volcanoes to just do this intermittently for 
months or years on end. It it doesn't necessarily when volcanoes do this, it, it's not necessarily saying that we're headed towards something immense and disastrous. It's just how the volcano behaves. So, you know, Agung's eruption has been going on for, you know, that's been November how long? 2017. Yeah. So we've had a couple, almost a couple of years now of activity uh, as one of these, one of 49 ongoing eruptions on the planet. Uh, some of them are much smaller than what Agung in Indonesia has been experiencing. And some of them are uh, on the same scale or even larger. You look at something like Shevelich in, uh, in Russia, and that's 20 years now of more or less what they'd consider an ongoing eruption. Yeah, there have been a few breaks. So actually, that's, that's probably a good thing to clarify what we mean by an active volcano and an eruption. We say there are over 1,400 active volcanoes on the planet. So by that, we mean that this particular volcano that is active has erupted within the last 10, 12,000 years. So that's baby terms in volcano land. And it means they could erupt at any given moment again if it started, I mean, by erupt, that I mean showing unrest at any given moment, which could lead to a small eruption. And then we have an actual eruption. And at the GVP here, we classify that as it has produced some kind of surface activity. So whether that is an ash plume or lava flow or anything like that within the last three months. So once there's been nothing for three months, we cut it off. And then if something started erupting the next week, that would be a new eruption. So that's how we classify that. And generally, everyone agrees with that. Before last year's eruptions at Kilauea, um, we tend to discuss Kilauea as being like one of the longest ongoing eruptions because it was producing stuff for 30, 35 years. Um, and that is, you know, that's an actively erupting volcano. And if you look at, look at the list, um, I always used to consider Kilauea, the, you know, that's a long ongoing eruption. But then you look at some of these volcanoes on the list and ongoing eruptions could be considered going back to the 1770s. If you look at Yasur in Vanuatu, yeah. uh, that's, that's impressive. Um, and that's, you know, a volcano where there has not been that, you said, three-month gap in activity since then. Uh, so some volcanoes are going to be that active, and then others are going to be quiet for you know decades or centuries. They're potentially active in the sense that we there isn't really a hard and fast cutoff for when you would consider a volcano truly extinct, at least not to my knowledge in the volcanological community. There isn't a number that we could point to to say that conclusively says it's uh, dormant or extinct. And even that terminology is me messy in itself. Potentially active volcanoes or active volcanoes even don't necessarily need to be throwing stuff out of the top of the volcano. They just have to be showing some of these signs that, that there is an active magmatic system underneath that volcano. Yeah. Yeah. Volcanoes sit there and they have a lot going on below the surface that we can't perceive without our instruments. So we have these things called seismic swarms that happen quite frequently at, at recently active volcanoes like Mount St. Helens and Yellowstone. That's just a part of the normal background everyday life of that volcano sitting there chilling out doing absolutely nothing. Yeah, this just this last week I saw some information about a seismic swarm in the Canary Islands where there are 
a bunch of earthquakes. And whether or not that leads to anything, we will have to wait and see. Volcanoes like to have earthquake swarms because magma moves around. Uh, hydrothermal systems. Yep, fl- fluids <laughs> from hydrothermal systems, water, uh, all sorts of things, even faults. I know Mount Hood is famous for having earthquake swarms that are related to faults underneath the volcano rather than anything to do with the volcano. So that's part of the job of the volcanological community doing the monitoring is, is trying to figure out exactly where those um, where those swarms are coming from and whether we need to be concerned about them or not. Yeah, that's that's a really important thing to say. Like we have um, in the news often tabloids, especially you'll see seismic swarm, fifty earthquakes at this volcano. Well, that doesn't mean it's related to magma doesn't mean it's related to volcanic activity and 50 might be nothing for that volcano anyway. So context and taking time to look at the data is really important. <laughs> we talk about these 49 uh, current eruptions and you know some people might jump to the conclusion quickly that that is more than what we might expect and you know I think the key here is that this is probably pretty close to sort of par for the course of volcanic activity and that we just know more. We have more monitoring capabilities to know when these volcanoes are doing little things that, you know, 100 years ago we would have no record of because either nobody's around or it's shrouded in clouds or it's just a tiny little swarm of earthquakes that that would have gone missed. But now because of the fact that we're we have so much better capabilities for monitoring. We notice every little blip at many more volcanoes. Yeah, that's a really great point. So as I mentioned, part of my job is looking for volcanic activity and I can get dozens, dozens, a couple of hundred pages of activity of, sorry, of information for activity at a volcano over four months. And that's partly satellite data. We, there is so much satellite information out there now, even free stuff. But we also have social media. Like everyone, not everyone, but most people have a phone or a camera. And then they upload photographs and video of everything as soon as it's happening. And some people even post this stuff live. So this is stuff that we couldn't even do a few years ago. So now we really do see every tiny little thing, whereas even 10 years ago, there wasn't that much satellite data available. There wasn't social media. So some people will look at the information we have and say it's increasing. A good example of this is I'm looking at, at I guess, last week's GVP, and they have, you know, there's an update about Great Sitkin in the Aleutians. And most people have never heard of it because it is near nothing. Um, it is out in the middle of the Aleutian Islands. If you look, one of the cool things you can do on the GVP site is look at population within various uh, distances of volcanoes. And I'm going to have you guess. Uh, have, have you spent much time thinking or looking about Great Sitkin? No, not at all. All right. So Great Sitkin in the Aleutians. Uh, how many people would you guess live within five kilometers of Great Sitkin? Oh, goodness. I know there are some islands out there that have small populations, but I'm going to guess five. That's five too many. Uh, no one lives within <laughs> five kilometers. Uh, I'll even, I'll, 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 I'll skip a few of these. How many people live within 100 kilometers? Five. I'm going to stick with five. It is still five too many. <laughs> so literally, we have a volcano here that within 100 kilometers of it, there is absolutely no one. 
who lives there. Um, but we know that it had at least some level of activity. The eruption, the uh, weekly report says that it was a small steam explosion and it was just detected via seismic data. So we saw the seismic uh, seismic information that there is a small explosion and that's what the Alaska Volcano Observatory can use to change what or keep the same what it thinks the hazard, the volcanic alert level might be for the volcano. Now, obviously, most likely, no one was anywhere near the volcano when it happened, but now we know that something happened. And some of you might say, okay, why do we care? Well, the Aleutians are that great example of a place where uh, airplanes flying over the Aleutians need to know if a volcano is going to start erupting uh, dramatically to avoid the ash that it might produce. But 10 years ago, like you said, 10 years ago, an eruption like that at Great Sitkin would probably had not been noticed whatsoever. Now we have the ability to to uh, know more about these smaller events and get a better sense of sort of the the waxing and waning of activity at some of these volcanoes. It's been a relatively volcanically quiet sort of time. Um, you know, Etna was in the news for a while just because whenever Etna does anything, it gets in the news everywhere. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really interesting point, isn't it? So we have 49 ongoing eruptions right now, which is at the higher end of normal, but nearly all of it has gone unnoticed. Yeah, I look I look down the list here, and the ones that I, I recall specifically seeing at least an article pop up on my Google uh, search uh, that I have set up for volcanic news is like, uh, you know, Cinnabong has been in there over the last few months. Um Etna, Agung, that's really, uh, Popocatepetl shows up fairly frequently. And there isn't a lot else that has really made it into the headlines. That's surprising because there's a lot of activity, some of which are, are is fairly significant uh, going on, but it just, it really is what the news folk happen to, what happens to get their attention a lot of the time. Or it happens to be in a place that's fairly frequented by people like Etna on uh, Sicily. Yeah, I mean, you can't blame them. I mean, most of this stuff goes without volcanologists around the world noticing too, because there's, you know, life to deal with and <laughs> dumpster fires every other day. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, let's see, what else What else can we uh, talk a little bit about? We can talk about June has got a couple fairly significant volcanic anniversaries. We have, uh, we just passed a few days ago, uh, the Pinatubo anniversary from 1991. So, you know, for a lot of us um, of a certain age, uh, Pinatubo is the most significant eruptions, especially considering that the, at least in my mind right now, the gold standard of volcano documentaries is the Pinatubo in the path of killer volcano. Seconded. It's one of these things too. It's like I show that to my students regularly and, you know, I'm realizing at this point that that eruption happened 10 years before they were born. First makes me feel old. <laughs> And then makes me <laughs> makes me wonder whether we need to have some new some eruptions. You know, the eruptions that I think the eruption that most of my students think of these days as something that they were aware of would be Iafialio and then Kilauea most recently. But beyond that, you know, I think of we talk a lot about Mount St. Helens and Pinatubo and for you know, student for students these days, that's <laughs> ancient history to many of them. Wow. Fun fact. Let's see what else. We have the other 
significant one is uh, Nova Rupta in Alaska from 1912. Um, again, that's a volcano that, uh, an eruption, the, the largest. So we had actually the top two in the 20, 20th century happening uh, all in the first half of June. We did, yeah. Many, many years apart, but they're both in the first half of June. Yeah. Uh, don't make anything <laughs> of that. That's just the vagaries of statistical dis- random distribution. But uh, there's Nova Rupta in 1912. And then this year is, in fact, the 10th anniversary of the Sarachev Peak eruption in Russia. And uh, one of the things that we had chatted about beforehand is the idea that the famous International Space Station images of the eruption plume, which are, which are to me, like one of the the best images of a volcano erupting ever, because they not only were able to get a shot from almost directly above, but they're passing over it to the point where they had these cool sort of 3D renderings of the plume as they went over. So it's a remarkable image. You can find it in lots of different places. And that's part of the problem is that you can find it in lots of places attributed to every volcano yep. that's erupted yeah. possibly since then. It really has. It's it's taken a life of its own. Uh, it's almost it's almost a volcano meme of sorts. Um, part of the problem of trying to deal with how quickly people start spreading information about an eruption without fact-checking what that information actually is. Oh, it's so bad. Yeah, doing these keyword searches I do on social media to find information, it is incredible how often the wrong images and the wrong video and the wrong eruption information is attributed to an eruption as it is ongoing. Now, if that's anything people take away from this podcast, be careful what you read and share because the amount of wrong information out there is astounding. And, and you know, some of it is intentional misattribution. Some of it is unintentional where it's just I've seen websites where they just pick stick in a random picture of a volcano to illustrate something happening at another volcano. And they actually attribute it to the right volcano in the article, but the game of, of social media telephone quickly has the the wrong picture attributed to the eruption in question. And, and, and that sort of can cascade quickly where an eruption that might have been relatively minor might get, I don't know, a picture of Pinatubo from 1991. And it causes a little more panic than people might want. It's definitely, it's not helpful. So yeah, the Sarachev peak eruption, it was, um, you know, it was a, a fairly significant blast explosive eruption that happened in this island off of um, off of Kamchatka. Uh, but the image has sort of kind of taken a life of its own, uh, where it comes back repeatedly, either correctly attributed to Sarachev Peak or inappropriately attributed to some other volcano. But it's one of these images that people love to bring up uh, and and give it both proper and improper meaning. It's a zombie eruption. It is. It's one of those images that I... I'm trying to think of other images that I see crop up like that. You know, I sometimes see... Cinnabon. Cinnabon pyroclastic flows. Almost every eruption that comes up. Yep. I, I feel like I've seen the picture. There's the picture of the... Uh, what is it? It's a it's a van, I believe, uh, driving away from a from, yeah, from a pyroclastic flow yep. at Unzen. Um, that picture tends to get distributed a lot. The Kilauea lava flows since they happened last year. Yep, the lava flows. Lava flows at that and the um, one in Iceland from the Hualahron lava flow field yeah. from a couple of years back get get thrown around a lot. 
Yeah, that, that's actually a good tip for, for checking, very first level check of is this volcano the right volcano? If someone's talking about a tropical volcano, if it has snow surrounding it, it's probably the wrong volcano. You know, that kind of that kind of leads us into thinking a little bit about uh, Yellowstone. And those of you who read the news, like I know many of you do, might notice that Yellowstone comes up uh, an extraordinarily... <laughs> It comes up very frequently relative to the actual eruptions that have never happened in anyone's lifetime at Yellowstone. Yeah. We've died about 10 times this year already from Yellowstone killing us all, according to headlines. Yeah. And, you know, there there are certain, you know, I won't name them specifically, but if you search for certain, uh, especially British tabloids, uh, they have created a cottage industry of Yellowstone uh, articles. And, you know, I did a little search and, you know, you can read down the headlines in bold capital letters of in the last two weeks even of Yellowstone Volcano. Why are thousands of animals leaving the active supervolcano? Yellowstone Volcano. Why the USGS warned three-day July eruption? A buried U.S. in four feet of ash. Yellowstone Volcano. Why USGS scientists warned ash cloud could reach stratosphere. Yellowstone Volcano. USGS reveals the terrifying odds of a major eruption in our lifetime. Yellowstone Volcano warning. Eruption could send Europe back to the Dark Ages. Um, and that's only in the last nine days. Seen that string of headlines about a volcano that hasn't erupted in, what is it, about 10,000 years, if I remember correctly, the most recent actual eruption. I'm just sitting here shaking my head. Yeah, they, they managed to even find a publicly available on YouTube and the USGS website a talk that was given in 2016 and turned that into a newsworthy event. So That's a very clear signal of the fact that, like I said, Yellowstone gets traffic. My blog posts on Yellowstone get all sorts of um, hits. And I'm sure that they see the same thing. It's it's interesting to think how many people read these things and think that they're actual news and not sensationalist stuff. Uh, you know, hopefully I'm looking at this one here in front of me now. It says Yellowstone eruption warning. Nostradamus predicted volcanic fire. Uh, that's from the same source as yeah. all these other supposed newsworthy. You know, USGS scientists were very nervous in quotation marks after increased activity. And that's hopefully what... Uh, we can get out of uh, Mike Poland when we talk to him about activity uh, at Yellowstone and how much we actually probably need to be concerned about Yellowstone or not. And I think, you know, you can look at a lot of sources that would rank volcanoes we should be watching closely. And Yellowstone is probably not very high for the U.S. No, I I tell people, you know, I want to study volcanoes that are actually hazardous that I think... Um, not necessarily all of them. Some of them are for different reasons. But if I want to study a volcano for hazards specifically, I don't want to study Yellowstone. I'm not interested. <laughs> so that should be saying something. Colleagues, friends of mine who study Yellowstone, that's one of the problems they have is that they do research there. And the minute that research gets out there, it is distorted in surprising ways by various media outlets um, just because it has the word Yellowstone in it. You know, you could say similar things about the research that people are doing at Yellowstone at places that I've been working, like Mount Hood or um, Lassen Peak in California. And it's like night and day in terms of how the media treats almost identical findings uh, at these t different volcanoes. <laughs> 
<laughs> I feel like we could do a worst Yellowstone headline of the month every every month. One of the various news sources in question, it could be worst for the week or like, worst or for the, the last 24 hours. <laughs> the news um, cycle. Yeah. So after this little break, we'll come back and talk to Mike about the caldera in question. excited to have with us Dr. Mike Poland of the U.S. Geological Survey, the scientist in charge of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory and uh, knower of many things to do with how the surface of the Earth changes. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Hi, Mike. Hi, Janine. Uh, we are going to talk to you about uh, the place that you find yourself in charge of right now, that being the Yellowstone Caldera. I know lots of people have it on their mind quite a bit. Yeah, uh, I, I definitely get a lot of email about about Yellowstone. The, my, my inbox uh, traffic has gone up since I since I took this job on. <laughs> I can only imagine. <laughs> We will come back to that. I have a couple questions about that in particular, but I just wanted to start off like going back. We're going to, we're going to go way back. And I just wanted to start off with asking the question, why you're a geologist who studies <laughs> volcanoes? Oh, well, you know, I, geology had always been something that interested me. I was, I was a, a kid when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980 and I grew up in California, Northern California. And so that was uh Volcanoes were sort of part of the the landscape, Lass and Shasta, and then knowing that they could do really spectacular things like Mount St. Helens did, I always found intriguing. And so that had sort of always been there, you know, camping trips in the mountains and hiking, uh, exploring. And so when I got to college and had the chance to try taking some classes, I couldn't say no and sort of turned into kind of an addiction. It's kind of funny. So there's all three of us here study volcanoes just kind of in, in different ways. Um, could you describe a little bit about how, how you approach the study of volcanoes? Well, my specific uh, specialty is volcano geodesy. And geodesy is kind of the study of the shape of the earth and the gravity field of the earth. So I look at how earth deforms uh, in response to magmatic activity. You know, as magma accumulates beneath the volcano, it, it causes the surface to inflate. And as it drains away, it causes the surface to deflate. And there's also gravity changes that go along with that. Uh, as the mass beneath the surface changes, gravity changes. So I spend a lot of my time looking at different data sets that show how the surface of the ground is moving, and then also trying to collect uh, gravity data that show how the mass is changing beneath the subsurface. Um, I mean, if you ask me, I think it's the most fascinating thing in the world, but I suppose we all think that about what we do. Is it the sort of thing that uh, as uh, undergrad that you had a lot of exposure to? Because I know in a lot of geology departments, you get bits and pieces of different types of the study of volcanoes. Is there anything you can think of from your experience that really got you interested in that part of volcanology? I think it was an opportunity that, that got me here. Um, and when I was an undergrad, I was looking for some sort of project that I could do, some something I could do beyond just taking classes. And I was asking around the geology department at UC Davis. That's, that's where I got my undergraduate degree. And uh, 
several of the professors had mentioned, oh, there's a new faculty member. His name is Roland Bergman. And Roland is now a, a very well-known professor at, at Berkeley. Uh, but at the time, he was just starting out at Davis, and his expertise was in geodesy, especially looking at how faults move. Uh, and I helped out with some uh, GPS surveys of Hawaii, uh, Kilauea volcano that he was involved in. And I thought, gee, you know, I'd like to do some of this myself. Is there some way I can, I can do this kind of work as, as a, a senior project? And I contacted uh, the Cascades Volcano Observatory, and I got in touch with the person that studies geodesy at CVO. His name was Dan Zarishan. And Dan said, you know, Medicine Lake Volcano in Northern California, which was not far from where I lived, uh, that's been done with GPS once, but never twice. And so that second GPS survey would allow us to see how things deformed. So Roland agreed to, to take me on as sort of an undergraduate uh, uh, undergraduate thesis uh, person. And then I was able to go to Medicine Lake and, and do the survey. And that sort of cemented it. It was fun. It was interesting. So even though I didn't have this initial interest in geophysics, uh, that field experience sort of set the tone for me. Do you find uh, – uh, this is a, a classic – perception, at least within the geoscience field, of course, that there's the, the rock geologists and the physicists. And do you feel like there is that that exists in your in your life that that it's <laughs> it's treated differently? Um, a, a little. I, I feel like in my own personal um, career, I, it's chemistry is something that I've I just have never gravitated to. I've never been good at it. it that was the, the class I didn't do so well on in college. Um, chemistry is just very hard for me, whereas physics to me is much more intuitive. Um, and so I've, I tend to gravitate towards physics. Uh, but the more I've been in volcanology, of course, it's all interconnected. The processes that we're observing are causing both physical and chemical change. And so some of the most fulfilling collaborations I've had are with chemists and where we try to come up with uh, mechanisms for change we see that explain both the physics and the chemistry. And that's that's the real exciting part of volcanology to me is is when you come up with ideas that can explain multiple different types of data. The, the next question I'd have is um, how did you end up at the at the USGS? And can you give us like a, a synopsis of sort of your career path that you have taken up to the point where you became scientist in charge at Yellowstone? Sure. I, I think uh, a lot of it is, has been luck. Um, and what I tried to do throughout my career was put myself in a position to take advantage of luck when it came along. So I, I got my, my doctorate at, at Arizona State, um, doing more uh, both geological uh, and geophysical work. But I cultivated these relationships with people that I'd been working with uh, for several years. For example, the staff members at the Cascades Volcano Observatory. And it just so happened that as I was finishing up uh, my doctorate, uh, a postdoctoral position became available at CVO. And through a, a series of, of uh, applications and so forth, I was able to get it. So that got me up into the USGS in the Cascades. And I was here when Mount St. Helens erupted or started to erupt in 2004, which was uh, an incredible experience. Um, in 2005, uh, right as the time my postdoc was starting to wind down, I was starting to think, you know, now what, what's next? And thinking about academic positions I might apply for or other, other sorts of positions, um, the geodesy position at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory came open. And so I applied and, and got that position. So I moved to Hawaii. 
and I spent 10 years there, um, 05 to 15, where I, uh, I got to experience a, a huge range of, of activity, got to work with incredible scientists. Um, I feel like I really, uh, I learned how volcanoes, um, how volcanology as a, as a science operates there, because in that observatory with, with, you know, you're constantly reacting to, to changes, um, and constantly having to come up with explanations for what's happening, working with petrologists and gas geochemists and seismologists. Um, that was an amazing experience. And then in 2015, I moved back to the Cascades uh, to do more work with uh, radar satellite data. Uh, and then in 2017, the chief of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory, Jake Lowenstern, he moved on to take the position of the director of the Volcano Disaster Assistance Program. That's the USGS international team that responds to crises around the world uh, at the behest of, of foreign governments. And, uh, and so I, I, at that point, got to succeed Jake at YVO, which has been a really neat experience. So I've had this fun experience now working in the, the Cascades, the Stratovolcanoes, and the, the Shield Volcanoes in Hawaii, and now these, uh, these huge silicic caldera systems of Yellowstone, and even the little, the little basaltic systems that, uh, that we've got scattered throughout the Southwest. That's you know, Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah are part of the YVO umbrella as well. You're just taking them off. Yeah, it, it's it's been been fun because when I when I started out, I thought, you know, there's what do I know about about Hawaiian type volcanoes? Um, but I, I got that job and I went there and I, I learned as much as I could, and then uh, I felt kind of comfortable coming back to CVO because I'd worked on strata volcanoes and now I'm I'm working on these big silicic systems. Well, what do I know about these? So I'm, I'm trying to learn as much as I can, and and that's really. Uh, tremendous fun is is going into some of these places and and learning uh, about all of the the history that's been done to map these volcanoes and understand how they work and and all of the problems that still remain to be solved i'm sure a lot of people might be curious like what is it you say that there is the the transition from when uh jake lowenstern was the scientist in charge to you how did they make that decision of who who is the next did you apply for it or is it something that like they come and w it like you're a knight or or like how, what are the stakes here and what, what's the process well why is a little different than the other volcano observatories in the in the usgs uh because yvo is really more of a coordination role um there's no physical place for YVO, right? There's no building. There's no. You know, I, I actually am still based at the Cascades Volcano Observatory. I don't. I don't live in Yellowstone in Wyoming or Montana or Idaho. Um, and my role is to coordinate research by USGS people that that work in Yellowstone and also all of the consortium members. YVO is not just USGS. It's the University of Utah, the University of Wyoming, uh, UNAVCO, which is a, a group in Colorado that. Uh, is funded by the National Science Foundation and does a lot of work with with uh, geodesy, deformation, GPS, and tilt and strain, and also the state geological surveys of Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana. So there's no one to supervise. There's no facility. Whereas, for example, the scientists in charge of the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory, there's a facility. There's a large staff to supervise. The same is true in Cascades and California and Alaska. So those jobs you need to apply for because it's a supervisory position. And uh, the YBO job is, is a bit different. It's, uh, it has all of the neat aspects of doing science and coordinating research and so forth, but none of the responsibility of supervising large numbers of employees. So there wasn't a, an application process. Basically, I was, I was approached to see if I wanted it. And it 
seems like a too good an opportunity to pass up. And it's it's funny to think that in 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 some way you might be the most public of the scientists in charge of the various observatories. I think probably you know whatever most people don't know any of them, but on the internet you probably have more people have no. There's a certain segment of the the internet population interested in volcanoes and they could probably name you as opposed to any of the other ones. Well, I, I suspect that uh, Tina Neal at, at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory has a fair amount of uh, name recognition um, owing to what happened in Hawaii last year at Kilauea. Um, she was really quite an, an inspirational leader in that, in that time. But I, it, I think the interest in Yellowstone is uh, amazingly disproportionate to the um, well, the scope of YVO, I mean, in some ways, YVO is very large because there's a, a large number of research um, staff that that work in Yellowstone, even though they're not dedicated to Yellowstone. And then the consortium of universities and geologic surveys and institutions is very large. Uh, I forgot to mention the National Park Service was part of the consortium as well. So uh, it's a, a big group, yet um, you know, the the actual full-time staff dedicated to YVO in the USGS is, is quite small. It's really um, just some of my time. And then Wendy Stovall, who's the, the deputy scientist in charge and uh, is, a, is a geologist that I work with here at CVO on, on Yellowstone issues. So I'd imagine that when people are listening to you talking about how there aren't that many people watching it full time, a question that might pop up is, well, if something started happening, would you miss it? <laughs> what would you say to that? Well, it's it's not that people aren't watching it full time. Um, it's that the USGS staff that's dedicated to doing research in Yellowstone is relatively small compared to the Cascades or Hawaii or Alaska or California. But the University of Utah is the authority on seismology in Yellowstone. They are constantly watching Yellowstone as well as other areas that they have an operational responsibility for. And in fact, some of their funding comes from the USGS to perform seismic monitoring in Yellowstone, Utah, sort of the Intermountain seismic belts. Uh, so there is a very close eye being kept on, on seismicity. Uh, and, and I co- um, communicate with them very regularly and I get the same you know, texts and email alerts uh, that anyone else gets whenever there's a, an earthquake of some magnitude. So I, I get to know those things as soon as they happen. Uh, UNAVCO, the, the group in... Colorado that specializes in surface deformation. They are looking at GPS data, strain data, tilt data, putting it all online, making sure it's available, making sure equipment is working. Um, so there's a pretty considerable number of people that are paying attention to Yellowstone that, that catch changes uh, in addition to those of us that are just sort of watching things on a, on a day-to-day basis like myself and Wendy and, and a few other folks uh, within the survey. I hope that makes everyone listening feel a little bit better about Yellowstone. <laughs> well, it's, it's a, the consortium is, is large. So even though it sounds like perhaps the USGS is not investing a tremendous amount in it, that's not really true because we are able to draw resources from the entire volcano program of the USGS. So we have people from the Cascades and from California that dedicate expertise specifically to Yellowstone. And then we have all of these scientists at universities and state surveys, UNAVCO, the Park Service, that are dedicating time as well. Uh, the, the park geologist at, at Yellowstone, Jeff Hungerford, uh, he does uh, a lot of work with, with YVO and we're in, in constant contact about changes in hydrothermal activity and neat things that they're observing that uh, we try to push out to, to the, the public to let them know neat things are happening or, or uh, 
or what changes might be happening in Yellowstone. And then also just sort of documenting what's happening in the park. Uh, it, we just have a, an awful lot of partners that are, are interested in Yellowstone, both for research and for keeping track of the activity. Did you get any advice from the previous scientist in charge when you took over? Yeah, he he was uh, very forthright about just how much uh, media attention there was. And so he, he sort of prepared me for the idea that there would be a lot of uh, interest, shall we say, in, in Yellowstone. And a lot of it is, you know, from, from traditional media outlets. Uh, but then uh, a lot of it is also uh, due to the fact that maybe there's some misinformation online and that sometimes generates a life all its own. Uh, he pointed me to a couple of times when some misinformation had gotten out there and, and it picked up momentum to the point where he actually needed to put out some uh, formal statements saying these sorts of things, which are, you know, rumors are now getting to the point where they're getting out of control. These are not true. So he gave me some, some guidance on uh, dealing with the, the, the interest, the level of interest in Yellowstone, which comes with its own challenges in terms of misinformation and uh, misreporting and, and assumptions that, that can be pretty easily dis- be disproven, but you have, to, you have to be on top of it. And we really appreciate that. <laughs> As a volcanologist who has never worked on Yellowstone, almost every time I meet someone new, which is very frequently here in DC or online, um, I get asked almost immediately, when is Yellowstone going to kill us all? <laughs> I, I went to a couple of um, events surrounded with science types and explorer types last week, and I got asked dozens of times those questions. So what would you say to those? When is Yellowstone going to erupt? I know the answers, but I want to hear them from you. <laughs> and when is it going to kill us all? Yeah, it's that's the, the common question I get, too, because I think a, a lot of people have, have seen enough documentaries or heard enough documentaries and that the take-home message seems to be, and you hear this all the time, you know, Yellowstone's a powder keg. It could go at any moment, that kind of thing. And of course, those taglines are out there to sell subscriptions or get viewers or, or whatnot. They work. They do. They do, clearly, because this is, this is uh, the, the, the take-home message that people seem to have, have internalized. Um uh, now, the, the, the truth is, frankly, I think, a lot more interesting. You know, there's a, a lot of misconceptions, for example, that uh, Yellowstone only explodes catastrophically. Uh, well, no, it actually is far more common that there are lava flows at, at Yellowstone. And then much smaller, but, but much more frequent, you know, very small ones happen almost annually, are these small steam explosions. So uh, that, to me, makes the place more interesting, not less so, because it's not going to kill us all tomorrow. Um, another common misconception is that it's overdue. And, and so that's sparked a lot of conversations about, you know, volcanoes don't actually work that way. If you ever hear a documentary or someone online or something say, well, yeah, Yellowstone's overdue, then you know right off the bat that they don't know what they're talking about because it's not the way it works. Uh, and then the idea, too, that, uh, well, you know, it could go off at any moment. Well, we'd see it coming. And I, I've gotten into interesting debates with people. No, you wouldn't. As, you know, we don't know everything, but we know an awful lot. We've, we're, we're not sitting here twiddling our thumbs. We're learning how these systems work. And to have a, a decent-sized eruption at Yellowstone, even a lava eruption, you got to move a lot of magma up towards the surface. And that's something that you can't do. You can't hide. You can't 
not have lots of earthquakes, lots of ground deformation, changes in thermal emissions, changes in geyser activity, changes in gas emissions. So uh, if, is, when is Yellowstone going to erupt again? Ugh. The odds of any kind of eruption, lava or ash, uh, in, in our lifetimes is exceedingly small, not even really worth calculating. Um, and in fact, in the Yellowstone area, the, the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory area responsibility, which includes the southwest, that's where the next eruption in, in YVO's area is going to be. It's not going to be in Yellowstone. It's going to be a cinder cone in the Arizona or New Mexico or Utah desert. So uh, the, the eruptive activity, magma getting to the surface of Yellowstone is just not, not very common at all. I'm sure there are a lot of surprised listeners out there hearing that. Um, I want to bounce back a little bit to the Yellowstone killing all of us thing. So w- both of you, what, what are your thoughts on Yellowstone's ability to kill life on Earth? I mean, Yellowstone has erupted, what, three three large eruptions. We also have other calderas around the world, and we're still here. I, I could go off on that, but Eric, you want to dive in? <laughs> I mean, I could go off on that as well. And, uh, you know, I was just talking to somebody about this recently. And just the, I I have done some at least inquiries with people who study climate uh, over long time scales, people who look at things like speleothem records in caves and stuff like that. And, you know, trying to see if anyone knows of any specific data about climate related changes having to do with the last Yellowstone eruptions. There aren't any big, to my knowledge, any big extinctions that we know of or any small extinctions that we know of that are correlated with those eruptions. So the more I read, the more I look, I'm skeptical of the extinction abilities of big explosive eruptions. You know, whether or not that would just cause human society to collapse, that's a whole other kettle of fish but extinctions i think that's not our specialty yeah i mean i think we can do ourselves in faster than a super volcano can yeah the you know this this experiment's been run right i mean toba was seventy four thousand years ago and there was a taupo was twenty six thousand five hundred years ago both of those were bigger than the last big yellowstone explosion which was six hundred thirty one thousand years ago and humans were on the planet for both of those and we're still here and you know, there's even evidence. I know many years ago there was some suggestion that the Toba eruption created an evolutionary bottleneck in early, early Homo sapiens. But even that now looks like it's being called into question. So you know, th- we've run this experiment. I mean, it wouldn't be pleasant, right? I mean, I don't want to be here when that happens, but we're not going to go extinct. Thank you. There's another aspect to that, that as well. And, and that's that uh, why is Yellowstone always the source of this? Now, there's potential for large volcanic eruptions around the globe, Indonesia, the Philippines, Japan, Kamchatka. New Zealand. New Zealand, yeah. Why is it always Yellowstone that's going to kill us? I feel like Yellowstone is that sibling who's always blamed for everything, so it looks like the troubled child, but really it's just not. Uh, It also doesn't hurt that Yellowstone is in the middle of the U.S., uh, which tends to gather... attention that way. And, you know, it's one of the points that I try to make to people, too, is the idea that when we look at large eruptions, there's a there's a lot of the time the volcano that that produces the large eruption is not the one that people were all was going to cause that eruption to happen. You know, I I would venture to guess that there are few people in 1990 saying we need to watch Pinatubo closely. Yeah, it, it sort of gets uh, saying is blown out of proportion is sort of a bad wordplay. But, you know, I, I look at 
volcanic activity, uh, uh, the, the potential for volcanic activity. And the, the ones that I, I guess I would be more concerned about happening on human time scales are these, these ones that are sort of an order of magnitude bigger than Pinatubo, but an order of magnitude smaller than Yellowstone. Something like a Crater Lake, you know, a Mazama eruption. Because those, you know, might happen every thousand years or so, which, you know, those are definitely human time scales, could cause you know, regional problems wherever the eruption might happen. And then uh, certainly would have a, at least a few year effect on global climate. And you know, those are the sorts of things that that are going to happen on human timescales, not necessarily a, a huge Yellowstone or Taupo or Toba sized eruption. Yeah. And we've seen recently with Eiffel that it doesn't take a large eruption to have a big impact. So sitting around and waiting for that big one to come along perhaps isn't the best way to go about it, Yeah, which as volcanologists, we don't. <laughs> right. In the recent year or so, there is all of the talk about people trying to come up with ways of stopping a Yellowstone eruption from happening. And and it it feels like that distracts from the real key here is just trying to build a more resilient society to to survive an eruption rather than coming up with these fanciful ways of trying to stop an eruption from happening. It is amazing. Since I moved to the U.S., how how often I get asked, can't we just bomb the volcano? (laughs) Well, if there's one thing science fiction movies have taught us is that there's virtually nothing that a nuclear weapon can't solve, right? In terms of geof- Oh yeah, technology. yeah. <laughs> Our friends in meteorology get asked that with hurricanes all the time. Yes, and you just have to remind people: do, do you just want to have a a massive eruption or a massive eruption that's also highly radioactive? Um, and that's kind of your choice there. <laughs> yeah, that was a that was a common issue that we also encountered in Hawaii is when there were lava flows that would would you know, threaten some populated areas. Like, why don't you just fire a few missiles into the, the eruptive vent? And, you know, that it's a pretty complex problem. Uh, and, and rock is pretty strong. You, you know, you, a couple of bunker buster bombs are really not going to do much to a volcanic vent. Um, and and to, to say nothing of sort of the cultural significance of, of, uh, of attempting such a thing. Um, then you look at something on the scale of Yellowstone. It's just drilling, bombing, those sorts of things. You would be you'd be putting all of this effort and, and resources into something that that very likely wouldn't work, would take forever, and misses the whole point because this is a, a problem that is not that much of a problem. And again, why Yellowstone? If you can do it at Yellowstone, do you need to do it at every potential place that might have a huge volcanic eruption? Good luck with that. <laughs> You said earlier that you get emails, um, yeah. and yeah. we. I'm assuming that one of the top questions is, of course, what we were just talking about here is the idea, or two things, right? Uh, when is it going to erupt? What can we do about it? Are there any sort of other common email topics you get about Yellowstone? Is it a lot of advice from people about what's going on there or what do you, what do you get? For, for the most part, I, I think the messages I get are from people that are hearing conflicting stories, um, right? You, you go online and you search for Yellowstone and the first thing that pops up is probably a tabloid headline that, you know, is alarming. Of course, if you read the article, then they say at the end, and eh, this isn't going to happen. Um, but there's also people on online that are you know, sort of promoting misinformation, some cases they're just blatantly making things up for mouse clicks or money or something. I don't know. Um, so I, I think if you hear these conflicting messages and then you sort of 
you know, but there's no media outcry. There's no, you know, ABC, CNN, all the no media outlets are reporting live from Yellowstone, which is showing all this anomalous activity. Then maybe you start to wonder, well, what's really going on? So I think a lot of the messages can be categorized as people that just don't know what to believe. You know, is this something we should be worried about? I get, you know, several emails uh, every year from people that are wondering whether they should take their vacation to Yellowstone. I get asked that too. You know, I, I, I can't answer that, that the question is, should you take your, well, take your vacation where you want to, but you know, if you're worried about, you know, getting blown up by a volcanic eruption, you can cross that one off your list. There's other things to, to worry about. I, I would imagine that things like the grizzlies and the things like <laughs> bison are more hazardous to your average tourist than a uh, potential of a eruption would be. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things I, I point out is, that, hey, you know, the volcano is not really the problem in Yellowstone. The problem is really people that are misbehaving, you know, not behaving as they should around wildlife. There's always uh, videos of people getting gored by bison or elk um, or and, and this is a, a especially serious wandering off of boardwalks in in thermal areas of the park. The boardwalks are there for a reason. The, the ground is hot. You know, it, it's it's a really active place. Just because it may not erupt for tens of thousands of years doesn't mean that there aren't hot springs all over the place and, and hot ground. And and that's how a number of people have have lost their lives is by going off boardwalk and, and falling into a, a hot spring or or you know, they've been scalded, killed. That's unfortunately, has, has happened many times. And it's heartbreaking when it does. Yeah, there's, there's horrible stories that have come out about that. So you know, the, the boardwalks are there for a reason. It's not. It's to protect the, the resources for everyone to enjoy and, and to protect humans from uh, from wandering into places that are dangerous. I think that's, that's a good tone that you got there. Um, I get asked a lot about you know, why do we do this as volcanologists? And for me, a huge driver is helping people, um, whether that's from an actual eruption or just helping people not be afraid of something that they don't have to be like Yellowstone. And another question I get is sort of people asking about, can, can you trust government scientists? You know, not being a government scientist, I get asked this. I'm like, well, yeah, they're people who care about what they're doing, loving the science, trying to figure this out, and they're there to help people. What do you have to say on along those fronts? Like, why would you possibly want to hide an eruption at Yellowstone? Yeah, I mean, the, the hide thing, I think, is a bit silly, right? Because the, you couldn't hide that. <laughs> There's no way. I mean, there would be... Felt earthquakes galore, and you know, it's funny. Some of the the sort of internet sensationalists like say, "Oh, see, there are earthquakes here and there and all over the place that that aren't being reported." And yet, you know, tens of thousands of people during the summers are in Yellowstone every day, and no one feels these big earthquakes. No one reports them. I mean, you you couldn't hide things like that. But so I, the the whole thing is kind of a common sense deal. I also think about oh, it's it's being covered up. Ah, so the, all the state geological surveys and UNAVCO and the National Park Service and the USGS and, you know, we're this, the, the, the universities, everyone is in on it and no one's leaking this information, which is of vital importance to humanity. That seems unlikely given, you know, all, all it would take is one conscientious person. I'd like to think we all are uh, to, to sort of sound the alarm. So none of the stuff really holds up on, on, uh, on examination, but you know, it, it's out there. I think people tend to see government scientists as, oh, they, they're they with the government and I don't trust the government. I get that. I mean, 
I, I, there are times where I don't trust the government too, but that misses the fact that we're also people. Um, you know, I, I, I have a family and a, I, I, I live, I, I have a community that I'm a part of. Um, it, I'm not, you know, some, some robot that goes into a closet every night and then comes out in the, the morning to do the bidding of the government. And that, that is funny. There, there are people that just say, well, I know you're controlled. I know there's a gag order placed on you and you can't talk. I said, really? I didn't know that. Yeah, we had to go to the highest level of government to get you talking on this podcast today, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, people that know me uh, know that talking is not one of my hangups. <laughs> no, you're doing a great job with the talking thing. No, and you know, it's a good point. You know, we should be questioning things that we read. We should be questioning the decisions that decision makers make. But actually asking good questions and looking for the evidence of what you've been told or what you haven't been told, going out there and finding it. So if people are out there wanting to find Yellowstone information, I've Googled just Yellowstone and the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory doesn't come up in the first page of search results. So where would you recommend people go to get good information and updates? Yeah, this is, this is a, something of a crusade, I guess that I'm on. Um, There is an awful lot of stuff out there about Yellowstone online. And a lot of it is, not reputable. Um, people making things up for whatever reason, um, you know, really fantastical headlines and tabloids that are going for attention. Uh, so I'm, I'm trying to, to start a campaign where we can get more uh, quality information out there. And um, thus far, it started sort of with the website and with the USGS, so, uh, USGS Volcanoes social media accounts on, on Facebook and Twitter. Um, given that there's this hunger for, for information that we really should feed it. And so uh, we started a weekly, um, basically a blog, but we put it out there on social media and then, then it gets picked up by other outlets uh, called Yellowstone Caldera Chronicles, where we try to tell a story about Yellowstone every week. Might be about history, might be about current activity, might be about some neat research or neat observations that were being done. Uh, we have been doing our, our monthly updates, which are, are posted online. Um, I'd like to find more ways to, to engage, uh, just because it, it seems like there there is a desire for for information, and I, I'd I'd like to be providing. I'd I'd like the the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory to move up that that search list. So it's something I'm always thinking about and 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 trying to to, to target new audiences so that uh, we can be seen as a as a reputable source for information. If you have a question about Yellowstone, you can go to the YVO website or to these other places and know you're going to get quality information. Yeah, the, the frequently asked questions section is great. And I, every time I'm getting asked questions about Yellowstone, that's always what I go to because there's just so much great information there. And you guys know what people are wanting to know. And you've, you've got it there so that anyone can understand it. That's a, a byproduct of getting so many emails that ask very similar questions. But, you know, people, people obviously aren't finding this information um, just with simple searches. So I'd, I'd like to, to, to improve that. I'd like to really be a uh, uh, a proactive source for for quality information about about Yellowstone beyond just the sensationalist headlines. You're, you're going to have to deal with Kevin Costner in some way, um, and his series Yellowstone. Which at first I was like, they're doing a series about Yellowstone. Of course, it has nothing to do with the volcano, to my knowledge. Yeah, but it does populate a lot of those first couple pages of search results these days. Yeah, I I um I monitor sort of 
uh, Twitter for Yellowstone stuff just to see if there's you know things out there that, that should be responded to. You know, somebody that's got a question that, that they're posing that may not come directly to us. And, and so that's sort of a way I try to be a bit more proactive. And it's lately gotten difficult to navigate through all of the information or tweets about about that Yellowstone TV series. Sort of swamping things right now. <laughs> so is there anything um, so far uh, since you've been – How remind me, how long have you been scientist in charge for Yellowstone? Um, just about – almost two years. Now. Almost two years. So is there anything that – has been particularly surprising or some an event that was surprising or something you weren't expecting so far in your tenure? Well, <laughs> sure. I'd say, uh, you know, I, I, I took the position right after the second largest swarm of earthquakes in, in the last 50 years or so at, at Yellowstone that had been recorded in 2017. So you know, I kind of started out uh, with this period of really intense seismicity and then in March of 2018, just a few months after I, I started in the position, uh, Steamboat Geyser started to erupt. And it hasn't stopped. You know, Steamboat was this, it's the tallest geyser in the world. And it would typically go sometimes years between eruptions. You know, there were periods in the 60s and the 80s where it would erupt quite frequently. Um, but it just started going almost weekly. Uh, the last few weeks, it's actually erupted every three to four days. Um and so that's that's been interesting because it's generated an awful lot of attention. Uh, people that are concerned that this may represent some new phase of activity for the whole volcano, like this one geyser is an indicator of uh, a potential volcanic eruption. Which you know that's not that's not really how geysers work. Geysers are shallower systems, and and they're inherently random uh, for the most part. So. So I, I spent a lot of my time talking about Steamboat and why the fact that it's entered this period of eruptive activity, it doesn't mean anything for, for, for the volcano part of things. Um, but it's also quite exciting uh, to, to see these changes. It, you know, Yellowstone's a dynamic place. It's always changing. That's one of these key characteristics. Um, back in September of 2018, we had the eruption of Ear Spring, which is not far from Old Faithful. Um, this got a lot of notoriety because it brought up a bunch of kind of human garbage that had either fallen or been thrown into the spring, like coins. There was a cinder block. There were these cans that came out with pull tabs. So they obviously were a few decades old. There was a pacifier that shot out. So um, there's been a lot of neat activity that demonstrates this dynamic nature. It, um, Jake, Jake Lowenstern, right, my, uh, my predecessor in the position, he mentioned the other day that he was – uh, the YBO scientist in charge for 15 years. And in the entire time, Steamboat only erupted. It wasn't even, it was like a dozen times, something like that. Maybe not even that, maybe it was eight. And yet in not even two years of me being in the job, Steamboat's erupted over 50 times. So. <laughs> and you're saying that that does not correlate with magmatic activity, no, right? No, no, no. I, it's funny. I, I get people that say, ah, well, Steamboat's, I got an email the other day. Steamboat's uh, activity has gone from erupting every seven days to every three days. So that must mean magma is shallower, right? Uh, no. <laughs> Steamboat's activity has nothing to do with magma beyond the fact that it's the heat source that, that uh, gets the water going. But it does. You know, magmatism does not control the eruption intervals. Uh, there are a lot of complex dynamics to, to geysers, their conduits, their plumbing systems, their reservoirs. Uh, that control how 
uh, how and when geysers erupt. So it's not a, an indication that magma is suddenly getting shallower beneath beneath the Norris geyser base. The, the correlation that I'm seeing is that steamboat geyser activity is correlated with you being scientist in charge. I, you know, that'd be cool. I'd take that because, you know, then it means lots and lots of people get to see and enjoy this spectacle. Um, I don't know if you've seen some of the videos that are on YouTube or Facebook of people watching Steamboat, but it's uh, it's exciting to, to watch the crowd's reaction. You know, when it starts to erupt, everyone starts cheering like crazy. Um, and I, I have not been there to see an actual water eruption. I, I actually missed the water eruption by an hour or two back in May, but I got to see the steam phase and it is spectacular. So I love the idea that steamboat is this active because people can see it, people can enjoy it. Uh, it, it's not this sort of once in a, maybe it's more special if you see it when it's only erupting once every few years, but, but now people can, can really enjoy it. And, and I guess that's something I would I would add is, is you know, for, for all of the, the challenge in, in educating people about Yellowstone and maybe trying to fight misinformation and tabloids and so forth, the, the great fun I have with this is when I go to the park and I interact with people on the boardwalks and the geyser basins or on the side of the road, uh, people are super excited to be there and fascinated by the geysers and the hot springs and the colorful bacterial mats and the, the history that is recorded in the rocks. It's, it's uh, very fulfilling to uh, just stop and chat with people uh, on a trail in, in Yellowstone and, and kind of hear their stories and, and how excited they are to be there, how, how the place really captivates their, their, uh, their attention and, and their interest. So the, the USGS has a volcano alert yep. level system for all volcanoes uh, across the country. So so the, the alert level system is a, a two-part system. There's a one that's focused on ground-based hazards and one that's focused on aviation hazards. Uh, it's often sort of lumped into one thing, like, ah, oh, the volcano is green. But the color code system actually refers to the aviation. And the language is patterned after what we see in the weather service, you know, normal um, watch advisory warning sorts of language. Um, so uh, you can have sort of a volcano that's maybe orange in terms of aviation hazards, but is at a warning level, the highest level for ground-based hazards. Kilauea was like that for, for quite a while uh, in Hawaii. So Yellowstone, with all that said, is normal and ground-based hazards and green and aviation hazards. And uh, occasionally I get people that say, you know, there was a there was a, a seismic swarm. Why didn't you raise the alert level? There's a seismic swarm all the time. There's seismic swarms constantly at Yellowstone. There's, you know, usually about 2,000 earthquakes every year at Yellowstone. So that's Yellowstone being Yellowstone. If we were going to raise the alert level at Yellowstone, we'd need to see evidence of uh, magma moving around in such a way that it looked like it was moving towards the surface. And that that's uncommon. So, uh, yeah, we don't we haven't changed the alert level during during my tenure or even at any time uh, in in the history of the alert levels uh, applied to U.S. volcanoes because we haven't seen that sort of activity uh, that would indicate that magma was moving towards the surface and, and would possibly result in an eruption. Yellowstone is one of the most well-monitored volcanoes on, in the world. So you can go to the USGS Yellowstone website and there's a great page there, Yellowstone Monitoring Map, and it shows you just how many different monitoring systems you have there, like where the GPS is, temperature, seismometer, tilt meter, and camera. So people are watching and we'll catch something. <laughs> yeah, there are 
It, it, yeah, it, it is one of the best monitored systems on the planet. I mean, there's dozens of seismometers and GPS stations. There's temperature sensors for, for geysers. There's uh, chemistry systems for, for rivers, you know, looking at, uh, at least through proxies, the you know, changes in, in river systems. So um, it's, it's really outstanding. The, the one thing I wish we had more of at Yellowstone were um, gas emission measurements, but it's so hard to get gas emissions from a place that's so big. And normally when we measure gas emissions at a volcano, you sort of fly around the cone, the peak, whether it's Mount St. Helens or Mount Baker or you know, Readout, whatever, because you know that's where the gas emissions are coming from. But you know, basically gas is coming out of the entire northwest corner of Wyoming uh, where the caldera system is. So uh, I, I wish we had a, more of a handle on that. And, and maybe that will come as technology improves in the, in the coming years. That should be a real focus. But certainly on the ground-based instrumentation is, is comprehensive at Yellowstone. If one were to wander over to volcanoes.usgs.gov and look at the map of alert levels across the U.S., you'd find that there are only two volcanoes that have any sort of elevated status right now, uh, Cleveland and Great Sitkin in the Aleutians. So, you know, again, we, we, we aren't looking at a, a, a situation where we have all these volcanoes in some massive state of unrest across the country. Um, and we are monitoring uh, many, 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 many volcanoes. And Yellowstone is just is one of those volcanoes that we're watching. Yeah, absolutely. We, we often hear things like, ah, oh, well, you know, all of the volcanoes in the U.S. are coming to life. And, you know, I think those sorts of things are, are promoted by, you know, kind of what people become aware of. You know, they hear about an earthquake swarm at Yellowstone, which may happen all the time, but they hear about it on the same day that they hear about that there was an earthquake in, I don't know, Italy. And uh, that that was a strong earthquake. Ah, oh, well, you know, it's the everything's coming to life. But it's really more an example of, of human perception. The Smithsonian did a really nice... Uh, the Smithsonian Global Volcanism Project did a really nice article on how perception has has colored the way we view uh, activity like that, geophysical activity. Is there anything else, Mike, that we haven't mentioned so far that you think it'd be great if people knew? Um, I don't think so. I think information is out there. I guess I, I just um, hope that, that people uh, explore the information that is out there um, about Yellowstone, particularly accessible through the, the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory website. And and always uh, to um, feel free to contact us um, if they have specific questions. Um, that's one thing I, I occasionally see is, you know, banter on, on Twitter or online places that, you know, people have questions and, and they ask, you know, random folks about something they read or saw. Is this true? And uh, I... I regardless of how much email I get, I do make every effort to answer every, every question. I mean, as long as you're not being, occasionally I get some ones that are fairly belligerent, but, uh, but if you have a question, feel free to ask our, our email address is YVO web team, all one word at usgs.gov. And, uh, uh, we, we try to answer every question we get. Give us the one salient message you would like people to have about Yellowstone, uh, on your, based on your experiences right now? Just that Yellowstone is a dynamic and fascinating place. It is endlessly interesting. Um, that does not mean it's the boogeyman in the closet. It's not. Uh, it is it's a fascinating place where 
so many things come together. Uh, learning about everything from how volcanoes work to possibly even the origins of life on this planet. Um, it's an amazing intersection of biology, geology, weather patterns, history. It, it, there's a lot that, that intersects there. And, and to me, that, that makes it just endlessly fascinating. Uh, so I, I hope people you know, share that level of, of interest. There's, there's so much to engage in. There's so much to explore there, regardless of you know, what your hobby or interests might be. Yellowstone feels like it's got something for everyone. All right. That sounds like a good way to end it there because Yellowstone does seem to have a little bit for everybody. So thank you for chatting with us about everything that you've experienced uh, being the, the I, what would we say, the, the face behind or is it in front of the volcano? I'm not sure how we want to put it, but um, you are the, the, the person who gets to be in charge of the largest caldera in the United States. So I'm not so sure I'm in charge of the caldera, but I'm at least uh, – in charge of the the institutions that that get to to try to understand it better. But yeah, thanks. This has been great. Really, uh, thanks for having me on. Well, since last time we recorded uh, the update for this episode, we surprisingly enough jinxed ourselves pretty well by saying that things were relatively quiet on the volcano front because we've had not one but two fairly significant explosive eruptions in the last five or six days. One of them coming from a volcano that most uh, volcanologists would say we should all be keeping an eye on. And the other is one that I'd venture to say most volcanologists have never heard of. You know, I, I'm definitely in that boat. So I started getting messages when Raikoke started erupting on Friday evening, my time. And I had no idea what volcano this was. I'd never heard of it. Yeah, I mean, I had I had seen something, uh, I can't even remember where I first, it might have been actually on uh, the Volcanic Clouds listserv. Somebody mentioned a big eruption in the Kuril Islands, and I assumed that it was going to be a volcano at least I was familiar with. But no, I had never even, had never even crossed my mind as an existing volcano, let alone one that could produce an ash plume that apparently reached up to about 13 kilometers. That's about 40, a little over 40,000 feet. Yeah, it was a fairly significant eruption. And this is a volcano that has erupted relatively recently. So 1924 was the last bigger eruption, which is re recently in volcano times. But no, this this was not on my radar at all. There's nobody living near it. Within 100 kilometers, there's like 150 people who live near it. So, you know, you look at the volcanic history on the GVP website for the volcano, and it's got three eruptions, uh, one in 1924, one in 1778, and another around 1765. You know, I would bet dollars to donuts that it's had other small eruptions in between, but nobody was there to see it. And we didn't have this sort of high level of remote sensing monitoring happening that uh, exist because I know a lot of most people were became aware of the eruption thanks to things like the Himawari 8 weather satellite uh, more than anyone on the ground actually seeing anything going on. Yeah, yeah. I, I, when I finally looked at Twitter, um, a lot of the information was from meteorologists and they had some really great stuff coming out. And then, of course, Simon Kahn with the sulfur dioxide plumes. And then there also just happened to be a tourism ship in the area at the time as well. But if this had happened 50, 100 years ago, 
would we have even known where the ash was coming from? There was ash fallen onto people, but would we have even known about this eruption or where it came from? You know, that's a great thing about modern day satellites and social media. We know about these things when they're happening. So a lot of people have comments um, or arguments sometimes saying that volcanic activity is increasing. But the fact of the matter is that we just know about every little tiny eruption. It's, it's incredible, especially when we have meteorologists now on Twitter. Um, I love the meteorology community posting these all of these incredible satellite images and loops of satellite images showing where the ash plumes are going. Thanks, guys. And, and, and sort of almost, again, to go with discussion we had when we first recorded, we talked about the Sarachev Peak uh, eruption, which is in general in the same area, and the lovely International Space Station images. And what do you know? The International Space Station got some great images, again, of this new eruption at Raikoke are very startlingly similar, maybe not startlingly, but it's similar to the Sarachev Peak pictures of a plume uh, rising up over the cloud deck and, and spreading eastward out over the Pacific Ocean is kind of remarkable. It is. Yeah. If any of you listening haven't checked out the NASA satellite images of the Raikoke eruption, go look at them. They're amazing. The NASA Earth Observatory team did a great little write-up on what they saw. It's There's some great stuff out there. And Eric's blog. Um, a lot of you may know Eric actually has a blog, Rocky Planet, on Discover, and he's done really nice summaries of both these eruptions as well. You know, I was thinking when you were saying, would we have even known where it came from? And I think it just boils down to what happened with the tourist boat is that it just, if there was a boat that happened to be nearby, that might have been the only way 100 years ago we people could have easily matched the ash that was falling to the volcano. Yeah, and that, that's happened in the past. Some of the volcanic history we have at these more remote volcanoes are from ship logs or volcanoes that might not be remote now, but were, you know, tens to hundreds of years ago. Rakoke, so far, it looks like the eruption, there's a big blast over the weekend, and then it has definitely sort of settled down some from what we can tell uh, you can there's a number of different websites that you can actually see real-time almost real-time satellite data to see what's going on and, and things look pretty quiet uh, but just as things were looking quiet there then we had another big explosive eruption this time from Uluwun in uh, Papua New Guinea on the island of New Britain and unlike Raikoke, this uh, Uluwun is what we'd call one of the, the decade volcanoes, which was identified uh, many years back as uh, one of the volcanoes that we wanted to study closely to understand how it behaved, just because it is unlike Raikoke, where you have 150 people within 100 kilometers. Uluwun has 61,000 people within 100 kilometers. There's, there's a bit of a difference there. So very, very similar eruptions, but the impacts are very, very different. Much like the Raikoke, Raikoke eruption, we had some great satellite images that sh show the plume uh, coming up through the cloud deck. And again, reaching, you know, I've seen numbers bouncing around, but somewhere in the sort of 13 to 15 kilometers or 30 to 40,000 foot plume, and then the ash dispersing uh, with the winds uh, over the ocean there. The Raikoke plume was incredibly complicated because didn't it enter a cyclonic system over the ocean and then you have... <laughs> The SO2 plume and ash plume anyway going all different directions. Here where we're seeing the, the weather patterns in the different parts of these eruptions. The Uluwun is a, a tropical volcano and Raikoke is in a much more northerly latitude. So the, the weather systems over the Pacific are going to dictate where that ash and sulfur dioxide ends up getting distributed. I know that the at least the sulfur dioxide from Raikoke has made its way over 
it's detected now over North America, so we're seeing that spread. You know, none, neither of these produced enough sulfur dioxide to probably have much of any sort of detectable impact on climate. You know, if this these volcanoes continue to erupt like that, that might change the story. But these were blasts that at least had fairly significant sort of uh, ephemeral uh, SO2 spikes. Yeah, it's it's interesting even being able to detect that now. Like how, how many years do you reckon we've been detecting SO2? You know, this is a relatively recent thing. We can see this now. The cool thing about modern volcano monitoring is how much this remote sensing by satellites has become the first line when it comes to understanding both whether a volcano erupted, which volcano erupted, and where the ash and sulfur dioxide might end up. Because the sulfur dioxide, less of a hazard than the ash, which of course, for both of these volcanoes, you have to worry about how it's going to impact aviation, airplanes coming over the area. The sulfur dioxide is more trying to understand um, how much we might expect that it could uh, impact climate. Because sulfur dioxide, you get it up in the atmosphere, enough of it, a lot more than what we're seeing with this, you can start doing things like uh, heating and cooling different parts of the atmosphere. Which is relatively rare that that actually happens. Yeah, there's a there's definitely a lot of assumption that any any explosion like this is one that can impact climate. And it really much, as with a lot of science, it is much more complicated than that. Because not only does it have to do with how big the eruption is, it has to do with where the eruption is, uh, latitude-wise, it has to do with the composition of the stuff. It's, it's getting enough of the right gases high enough into the atmosphere over enough time during the, in the right place and the right season. <laughs> it is complicated. So yeah, those, those are two uh, eruptions that happen that we'll see if both of the volcanoes keep on producing these explosions uh, into July. Uluwan is, is watched under the auspices of the Raval Volcano Observatory. People have been evacuated from the, the slopes of Uluwan just as a precaution. And uh, we'll see where that one goes. As for Raikoke, uh, that one, again, is much more of a hazard for the airplanes coming over that area than it is for people living nearby, because not many people live nearby. Thank you for listening to the inaugural episode of Popular Volcanics. And thanks to our guest, Dr. Mike Poland of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory for joining us today. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com backslash popular volcanics. And if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, head on over to Pop Volcanics. If you'd like to follow each of us on Twitter, I can be found at Eruptions Blog. You can find me at Janine Krippner because I was not creative enough to come up with a cool Twitter handle. If you have any questions or comments or suggestions for the podcast, you can email us at popularvolcanics at gmail.com. We'd also like to mention that the opinions offered on Popular Volcanics do not reflect those of the institutions that we find ourselves right now. Always make sure to check what you read. So go to the official sources, go to the Smithsonian Global Volcanism Program and check out all the volcanologists on Twitter, but no one will have more information about the local volcanoes than the people actually monitoring them. So hopefully you can join us next month for episode number two of Popular Volcanics, where we'll be dissecting and ranking and 
generally arguing about the best volcano-related movies and giving you some more updates about what's going on in the world of volcanoes across the planet. The